0: When we last left off last week, we were in the middle of this topic of love and attention. And I want to try to move fairly quickly through it because we have a lot of other material we have to cover tonight. We had spoken about the importance of giving children attention. That is, when a child needs you to go and be there for the child, and we mentioned that this creates secure children, or what psychologists call children with a high level of attachment. And these kids end up being brave, secure, they can go out, they can do what they have to do without being afraid. Okay. There's a second part of loving kids. Beyond attention, there's something called affection. And affection is completely different. Affection is warm, it's cuddly, uh, it's hugs, it's kisses, that sort of thing. It's showing the child that you are moqueer the child, that you feel the child is special. Yeah? So, affection has a very different sort of effect on children. Affection creates uh, a conscience in the child, a sense of empathy, a desire to do good in the world. Now, it's not clear exactly how this works. There, there, there are psychologists who want to argue that the way that it works is that if you model caring and loving for children, that those values go in. And that would fit very well with the, with the, with the planting-building prayer model, that whatever you illustrate for your children, those are the seeds that you plant. So if you love your child, then they will later love others. Yeah. But the statistics here are outrageous about the correlation between loving kids and producing children who are good children, meaning that in the long run, they end up becoming fine human beings. Uh, Just because we're low on time, I'll refer you to the statistics in Kindle the Soul in the section on love and and affection, But, but I'll give you one Nikuda which astounded me. Perhaps the most famous forensic psychologist in America is a woman by the name of Joan McCord. So McCord did a very interesting study. What she did was, it was a longitudinal study in which she first measured the amount of physical affection that fathers gave to their, their children, to their boys and girls, little boys and girls. yeah, And she also measured verbal affection. I love you, you're a sweetheart. Come here, you yummy bunny. Yeah, that sort of thing. Okay. Then what she did was, right, she then watched these kids for 30 years. And at the end of 30 years, she then looked at their criminal records. Yeah? Okay, now, here's what she found. She could predict, this is absolutely astounding, just based on the number of hugs... and and verbal affection that fathers gave to their boys and girls, she could predict with 92.9% accuracy later criminal activity. This ended up being the most powerful predictor of criminal activity better than... Uh, I didn't bring all all all, all the control things that she had, but it was better than uh, parents' criminal activity, better than educational level, better than socioeconomic level, better than learning disorders, better than uh, drug abuse. After controlling for all of these things, it turned out the most powerful predictor was how much affection the children got. So it's a blow-away study. And again, what's so powerful about it is it demonstrates clearly what the Torah is saying which is whatever you plant, that's what's going to grow. So if you plant lots of love and you show your kids that they're precious, then they grow up feeling that other human beings are precious. And then they will, they, they will live their lives as if they're dealing with Selim And if I relate to my kids as if they're not Selim as if they're bothersome things that get in the way of my very busy life, then that is also what the children will internalize in keeping with the, with the planting and building model. Okay, now, I should just mention Agav I'm trying to only stick to Torah sources here, but I'll just mention Agav, that there there is another body of literature which we should be aware of that relates to affection. And that's like this. There are a number of studies that suggest that the reason that when you love kids, it makes them good, is because children come into the world only partially wired. And when you love them, it completes the wiring in the brain, and specifically in those parts of the brain that are responsible for conscience. The, probably the most famous study that was done was done by a neurologist by the name of Harry Chugani. So what Chugani did was, there was this horrible experiment done in nature where um, in the Eastern Bloc, these children were put in these horrible state orphanages. And there you would have, let's say, one attendant taking care of 30 or 40 or 50 children. And these children would you know, get uh, affectionate adult attention for five, six, seven minutes a day, sometimes ten minutes a day. And it had, it had terrible effects on these children. Okay. Chugani was asked to perform PET scans on these kids. And what he found was that there was a correspondence between the amount of time that the children were given attention in the particular orphanage they were in and the degree of lack of development in that part of the brain which is responsible for conscience. So Chigani said, it looks to me like we have pretty good evidence here that if you don't love children, they won't wire properly. And it could be that a lot of the people out there today who act in what seems like an incomprehensible fashion it could be that they aren't wired, that they're only playing with half a deck, and that's why they act that way. So it affects neurological... Actual neurological development is different. In other words, the, the, the structure of the brain looks different with someone who's been hugged and kissed. And the more hugs and kisses you give, the more development actually takes place. Now, I'm only quoting one of the studies that, that indicates this. There are lots and lots of studies that I'm, that I'm not quoting. They're all in, 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 um, in The in of Soul. But there is a fair amount of evidence that there, there could be a biological mechanism as well. I'm not stressing that because even without that, just based on the Torah's theory about planting and building, we would expect these kids would not come out to be good kids. But uh, there, there might also be a biological mechanism as well. Yeah? Why did that previous study um, focus on father affection as opposed to mother affection? I don't know. The, I mean, Joan McCord, who was the psychologist, who just decided that's how she wanted to do it. But uh, she's, not, she's not a boss Torah, she has no idea what she's doing. It could be someone already did a study on, on motherly affection. She wanted to get published, so she did on fatherly affection. Okay, I, I have no idea why. Okay, now. Uh, just wrapping up this material on the importance of hugging and kissing kids. We know that when kids do not get enough physical affection, uh, they get sick. Uh, there used to be a disease called marasmus, Yeah which, in, this is in the 1800s and 1900s, which today, early 1900s, 1800s, today, this disease is called failure to thrive. And it's well known, the way that the, the disease was discovered was that they would have kids who were in hospitals, young kids who were in hospitals, who were getting perfect physical care. It was the right temperature, and it was the right, exactly the right foods, and everything was perfect, and then these kids would just drop dead. And they couldn't figure out why the kids were dying. And eventually they realized that if you don't hug children, they die. And uh, so these infants were were passing away until they finally realized the nurses actually have to pick them up and hold them and hug them and kiss them and things like this, and then the children thrive. What's astounding is that, this is from the Merck Manual, which is fairly conservative. The Merck Manual says that 1% of children who are checked into North American hospitals these days are suffering from failure to thrive, which is astounding. We're talking about the crest of the 21st century and 1% of the kids going to hospitals. Now, these are only the kids who are so sick they need to be hospitalized. Yeah? there's probably a much higher percentage of people in North America who just are not giving their kids enough attention and the kids just don't do well. Yeah, and, and we're not talking here about some crazy left-wing theory. This is recorded in, in all the medical literature. We, there, there's no one who disagrees that if you don't hug and kiss kids, they will not do well physically. You can imagine, if they're not doing well physically, there's probably other things that are not doing well as well. Yeah, you know, in terms of their spiritual development, their emotional development. Uh. I'll, I'll, I, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I'll just give you one more very interesting statistic. Yeah, this is a mind-boggler, like this. Um, there was a study done at Harvard in the 1950s. What they did was they asked students to rate the quality of their parental relationships. And they, they gave four ratings. Yeah, They could either rate their, their relationship as very close, that was the top relationship. Number two would be warm and friendly. Three was tolerant or four was strained and cold. So these students at Harvard, they they rated their relationships with their parents and then, right, 35 years later, the, the same researchers went and they checked the medical records of these people. So here's what they found, yeah? Of those who rated their relationships, number three or number four, that is tolerant or strained. So... 100% 100% of those people, 35 years later, were suffering from serious health problems like coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, duodenal ulcer, and alcoholism. Versus, among the group who rated their parental relationships as a 1 or a 2, so 47% of those, right, were suffering from serious diseases. Because when people get older, they suffer from serious diseases, yeah? But look at the numbers here. 100% versus 47%. And the only difference they could identify between the groups was how, they, how well they felt loved by their parents. How tight the relationship was. So again, I, 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 I'm not recommending that we hug and our, uh, kiss our kids so they don't get dual dental ulcer or coronary artery disease. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this in far deeper. This is a remiss that children need hugs. In, in my house... I've been doing this for years. Before I ever saw this, I just had this intuition. I asked my kids from the time they were very young, I asked each of them every day, did you get enough hugs today? Okay. My oldest child is 15 years old. In 15 years, I've never had any of my children say, yes, I got enough hugs today. Never. They're always like, oh, I want another. (laughs) Yeah? Why? Because people like to be hugged and kissed. By the way, I'm not sure that it stops at 15. I have empirical evidence that 41-year-olds also like to be hugged and kissed. Yeah? And I think that's good and healthy for people and when people don't have that physical contact, right, and that emotional support, that can cause problems. So, how much more so with our children? Therefore, I'll go out on a limb and say like this. You cannot hug and kiss your child enough. You cannot give them enough verbal affection. If you try to hug and kiss a 13, 14, or 15-year-old in front of their friends, they will kill you. Yes, so I don't recommend that. But uh, when there are, there's nobody else looking, you should hug and kiss them. And even their children in their teenage years do go through a stage, very often, where they will not allow you to hug and kiss them. Then what you have to do is approach from the rear and just tackle them. Yeah, but children need to be hugged and kissed, and and, and you have to give them that. By the way, one of the Gedaliah door has has made the statement publicly, and it's 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 uh, frightening, people should be very, very careful about sending their kids away to a school when the kids are young, sending their kids away to a boarding school. And he says the reason is because children need a certain amount of uh, physical affection. And they will get it. One way or the other. They will get that physical affection. So if you send kids away in the secular world to a boarding school, so terrible things happen. Yeah, your boys and girls get together. Vehulah. Okay, if you send children away in a firm environment where there's only boys or only girls, terrible things also happen. Sometimes worse things. And unfortunately, there's cases of this. So I, I'm not I'm not echoing the statement of this gadol that you should not send your children away. There you have to ask a shy one. What I am saying though is that while your children are around you make sure they get enough affection because there is a certain level of affection that every child needs and if you don't bring the meter up that high the child will end up getting the affection someplace else because they need affection. That's just the nature of human beings. Okay. Uh, Enough said about affection tonight. There's a lot more but we won't go through more tonight. one, One practical point. I promise I would say practical things to you. There are a lot of women today for, who, for whatever reason, need to work. That is just the matzav. And I'm not going to get into the whole sugya now, about whether it's good to work or not good to work. The reality is that people work. Uh, if, par- if both parents work, it is absolutely crucial that there be at least one parent present to send the children off to school in the morning and to receive the children home at night. Yeah? Minimally, that is That is required. More, when the children come home from school, they need to unload. They need to tell their stories, they need to sit and eat somebody something with somebody, they need someone attending and attending to them and giving them affection. So in families where there's two people working, it's crucial that at least these problem is sending them off in the morning and walking them home in the afternoon, be handled. Yeah? Beyond that. Even if both parents have to work, unless he's a rabbi and she's a rabbit. So they don't work on Shabbos. Yeah? There's no reason for them to be working on Shabbos. And therefore, if both parents work, it's more important than ever that they pay attention to their children on Shabbos. One of the, the, the most disastrous things that I've seen is two parents who work, and then on Shabbos, they have 30 guests for Shabbos. Yeah? Because they're tzedikim. And their children hate them. Yeah? And they say, well, no, we're being mechanach our children and hachnas No, they're not. They're being mechanach their children that their children are not loved. That's the clearest message that's being sent. Yeah, that there is a mitzvah of and everybody has to be machnasorchem. My wife and I took upon ourselves. We're part of koliso. We have to be machnasorchem. My wife and I took upon ourselves. Every week we have Kavuah guests. I mean, we really are big into machnasorchem. We have Kavuah guests. We we selected five people who had no other place to go, and we have these five people who come to us mamish every single Shabbos. Yes. My oldest son, my oldest daughter, my middle child, right? right, right All five of them, they come every single Shabbos to our table. They have no other place to go. No one else wants them. So I take them, yes? Fine. Now, those five human beings are guests and they deserve as much attention as any other guest that I would have at the table. And it wouldn't be nice if I invite 30 people and I talk to three of them and I don't talk to the other 27. What favor did I do by inviting these other 27 people? I'm totally ignoring them. I'm not giving them machnas So if you can take care, momish, terrific care of 15 people at your table, so be sure to take care of all 15, right? Five or 10 of your own and then the rest, yeah? But if, when you have guests at your table, you end up ignoring the children, so then you have to ask the children, when do you want to have guests? And let them decide, yeah? Lamaisa, my kids, they like having guests. And once every two or three weeks, they actually insist that we invite guests for one of the meals, and, and we listen to them, and, and we do whatever they ask. The rest of the time, we've been amazed to find they actually like our attention. More than they like having us give our attention to the guests. And, and so I feel like, you know, since I, I already have a kviis with them, I'm going to give them priority. So I, I know this, this sounds like a crazy radical thing, and I'm, I'm not prescribing this. I'm just giving an example of how you can make children feel loved. How you can make them feel that they are really, really hashoof. Okay. Uh, Shabbos sending your children off. Uh, fine. Okay. En- 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 enough right now. Oh, one, <laughs> one, more, one more important thing. There's some data coming out right now. And I did not quote it into Kindle of Soul because it wasn't out yet. But there's some data coming out now. A whole bunch of different studies all just broke. Talking about, you probably heard about some of these. They hit the New York Times. They were all over. Talking about the importance of eating dinner with your children. Yeah? I don't know if you've heard about these studies, but. Um, they've actually linked, again, cr- criminal activity in later life to eating with your kids at night. So dinner is a very, very, very powerful way of stabilizing a family. And if mom and dad can both sit down with the children for dinner, that's very powerful. Uh, when, I, when I took my job, my job has very long hours. When I took my job, I told them, I cannot work for you unless you allow me to go home for dinner. Yeah, so, because I have to teach at night also. So the way my schedule works is that I work, 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 then my day stops, I go home, I have dinner with my kids, then I go back out again. Yeah, when my kids are going to sleep, then I leave again. But I have dinner with my kids every night. Yeah, I'm usually there around bedtime too, so I can help out with bedtime a little bit. But that's not required. But just that mom and dad should both sit and eat dinner with the children. If mom and dad are not both sitting and eating dinner with the children, that is called a risk factor. Yeah, there's a chisaron in the amount of ava that's being given over. And the kid might come out fine, uh, but that's because we have no control over how our kids come out. It's all of a course broke anyway. Yeah? But it's not sufficiently shtadless, I believe. If, if, in, in, okay, there's cases where you can't have dinner children, but if you can, you should. Yeah? <coughs> I don't know if it's our, our, our generation today or where we live, but um, what happens when children reach a certain age where they don't want to eat together? They, a child, one wants to go to this friend and one wants to go to the other and the parents are pulling their teeth trying to keep them together. Also, as kids become more independent, in a so they may want to go away for Shabbos every now and then. Then what you have to do is, you have to make your Shabbos so terrific that they momish feel chisar when they go someplace else. Yeah, you know, in terms of the attention they get, in terms of the food that's served, in terms of you know, like all that stuff. A, a, A very very wise man once said to me that if your kid kids love hot dogs and French fries, that's what you serve on Shabbos ay, Kavot Shabbos, that's Kavot Shabbos for them. That's their favorite food in the whole world. Right? Why is prime rib so special? Because people think it's Chashuv. Well, if they think, French fries and, and hot dogs are Chashuv, so that's what you serve. Yeah? Right? Basar of a doggie. <laughs> yeah? So, so the, the idea is make Shabbos so special that the kids will spend time with you. And then all the friends will be coming to you. I I'll tell you, I, I, when I was in Kolel, my cherusa asked a, a fascinating child to her Sheinberg. Just, this shows that tzidkus of, of my chavruta. My chavruta was getting a house in Beit Shemesh. I think it was Beit Shemesh? And it's warm there. And uh, when they were they were just building the house, and the, and the the uh, contractor gave them the option of having built-in air conditioning. Yeah, built into the house. And uh, my chavruta had family that was willing to pay for the built-in air conditioning if he wanted it. And he was discussing with me, like, should he do it? Is it too much Gashmias? You know, maybe like, you know, then my kids will be addicted to having air conditioning and they won't be able to sit in kolo because they'll need air conditioning too badly. It's all sorts of he went through. He's a real tzaddik. So, so, he went to Rav and he asked Rav Sheinberg to Shailah and Rav said to him, Avani, you should get air conditioning. He said, I, but my kids will be addicted to this Gashmias then. <coughs> and if they're addicted to the Gashmias, so then when they grow up, they might not be able to go in kolo, Bahula, all these and said to him. But if you don't have air conditioning, they'll go play someplace else and you won't be able to supervise their play. So get the air conditioning and they'll want to be at your house. Yeah. So the kids are, if the kids want to go away, make it delicious and tantalizing to be at your house. They'll want to be at your house and then maybe you end up having a relationship. Meanwhile, you, you know that you have to put down your foot when the kids are teenagers to have them home at dinner time because you remember what you and I were like when we were teenagers? We also were trying to escape at dinner time, right? And my parents put down their foot and said, you have to be home for dinner. Finished. We had a family dinner. And I remember those family dinners. I remember learning a lot of those family dinners. Yeah? I also remember growing up at a home that was like a very secure place because my parents were there. So you can create a feeling <coughs> that you're there, even if you're not, if you're there for dinner. Okay. Yeah. Fine. Do you what age kids talking about? So small kids, all ages? It's, uh... it's the They become older. They become more and more independent. Yeah, but but a 13, 14, 15 year old kid needs to be home for dinner. Yeah. The the more the more love you can give them, the more attention you can give them the better. It it doesn't really make a difference. The when they're youngest, that's what has the greatest impact. Yeah? And by the time they're thirteen, 15, fifteen, they're already pretty much cooked. Yeah, but the more that you can pour into them, the better. You know, the, it's, it's very, very common today that the children, when they go away to Yeshiva Gedola, they leave town. That's a very normal thing. I'm panicked that my kid's going to leave town when, he's, when he gets to Yeshiva Gedola, so I'm grabbing every moment I can now to stuff in the, the Ava so that he really feels loved when he goes away. I hope it doesn't happen, but if he goes away, then I want to make sure he feels loved. If you want to know how to relate to your kids when they're, like, if they're, they have a long day, my 15 year old Mice doesn't come home for dinner because he's in yeshiva all day. He comes home at 10 o'clock at night. So, Revolba, in his Sefer Chinuch, in his real binyan, there he says that when the kid comes home after, you know, he comes home on the weekends or whatever from yeshiva Gadol, or I would adapt it and say if he comes home late at night, you make sure that when he comes home, you love him and you give him attention, you're focused on him so that he feels that he was missed. Yeah, very, very important. Okay, now the Inyana Dioma, what we came to talk about tonight, is this whole Inyan of punishment. Um, I, I hope we get through this. We only have about 30 minutes to go, but, but uh, this is very, very important. Okay, point number one children operate in one of two exclusive modes. They're, they either operate in, in what we call obedience mode or learning mode. Now you cannot be in both <coughs> modes simultaneously. What's the difference? learning mode is characterized by a relaxed, happy state. That's when people learn the best. One of my rabbinians said there's only one muscle in the human body that only works when it's relaxed. And that's the cup. Yeah? Your brain only works when it's relaxed. You don't learn well when you're under pressure. Do you remember trying to cram for exams and it not going in because you knew that you only had one hour before the exam was coming and there was no time? So... When you're under pressure, it's very, very difficult to learn. When you're relaxed and happy, things just go in easily. Obedience mode is different. Obedience mode is when I wanted the child to be obedient, so I brought some sort of pressure down on top of the kid to force their behavior into line. At the time, I'm forcing the kid against his will, because if if it was his will to act that way, he would have been acting that way the whole time. So I'm forcing him against his will, and because I'm bringing enough pressure to bear... He listens. But at the time when he's listening he's feeling rebellious because I'm forcing him to do something he doesn't want to do. So what ends up happening he goes into this nervous rebellious state. In this state children do not learn well. Now all of chinuch we said is planting building and prayer. That means it's about passing seeds passing bricks and davening that the seeds and bricks take root yeah, and, and, and stay in place once I flip a kid into obedience mode I have blocked the conduit and it's impossible for me then to pass bricks and seeds to the kid so in theory what we should see is kids whose parents keep them long term in obedience mode those kids should end up being less well behaved than the kids who spend more time in learning mode And I won't go through the data tonight because we don't have time, but if you look in in into Kindle Soul, there's pages and pages of data of what happens when parents, in order to make their kids behave well, constantly deal harshly with them. The harsh treatment keeps them in line, always in obedience mode, and whenever the parents turn their backs, boom, the kids misbehave immediately. By the way, who was the one who came up with the theory that education... Is about creating negative associations with inappropriate behavior. Do you know what his name was? Skinner. Skinner. So Skinner, he was one of the more modern people. His predecessor was Pavlov. Skinner worked on birds. Pavlov worked on dogs. Yeah. And they realized that if you give a dog a shock or a bird a shock, right? The bird. Skinner's experiment with the bird was he used to put a bird on his finger in front of a class. Every time the bird would turn right, he would give it sugar water. If it would turn left, he would give it an electric shock. Within one hour, he had the bird just spinning in circles. Pavlov did this famous experiment with his dog that there was a number of experiments he did, but one of them, one of the most important was, every time the dog would go for a certain bowl of food, the trainer would give him a shock. So what they found was, Pavlov's dog wouldn't go near that bowl of food until the trainer left the room. The minute the trainer left the room, the dog learned to go for the food. Now, quick, chow down before the trainer comes back in. Now, I'm not saying that this would work by human beings, but let me ask you, is there anybody in the room who, when they were children, did something their parents told them not to do when their parents were not present? (laughs) Okay, if anyone didn't raise their hand, they're a liar. (laughs) Yeah? Why? Because if the only reason I'm behaving is because I'm afraid of the punishment, guaranteed, when there's no punishment, I'm going to misbehave. How do you actually create a kid that behaves even behind your back? you can only do it by passing seeds and bricks and davening. You actually have to change the guts of the kid. Therefore, the goal is to keep the child as much as possible in learning mode, not in obedience mode. Okay. Now, with this in mind, you can go to stage two. Let's chaser over. What is chinuch? The definition of chinuch given by Rashi is It is bringing a child or an instrument into the profession, into the activity that it will in the future do forever. If that's the definition of chinuch, you understand that hitting a child, or verbally abusing a child, or using other forms of harsh punishment, has nothing to do with chinuch. It might be valuable. In a few minutes I'll talk about the value of punishment. But what I first want to do is I want to separate punishment is one thing, and chinuch is another Chinuch is bringing the kid in to do what you want him to do forever. You want a kid to hang a mezuzah in his house? Take him and hang a mezuzah with him. You want your kid to eat, eat like a mensch? Get the kid to start eating like a mensch. Yes? But, but when you smack a kid, you are not bringing them into any profession they're going to be performing forever unless you want them to be uh, abused to spouses. That's a profession that you need to practice getting smacked, smacked. Yeah, But unless that's what you want them to do, that's not called Chinuch. It's something else. Now, so the goal of Chinuch is to get get the kid doing what you want him to do forever. The goal of punishment is, this is very different, the goal of punishment is to stop misbehavior. Now it's crucial to get these goals clear. One is to get the kid to do what you want him to do forever. The other is to stop him from misbehaving. If you accept these definitions, you now have access to a far broader range of punishments than before you walked in tonight. I'll explain why. Okay, let's go to part D here. Or part C. Start with part C. The first thing you have to know... Question? No, I'm just not clear Uh, so but it's like this the goal of punishment is to stop misbehavior the goal of Binyan is to put a behavior into the child yeah so one is going to be actively putting some behavior that you want into the child the other one is just stopping a misbehavior okay now stopping misbehavior will not put a behavior into the child at all yeah okay now, see, like this. There are cases when there is no reason for any sort of punishment. And the beginning of knowing how to punish is knowing when not to punish. So, for instance, if a child is sick, then there's no need to punish the child. The child's misbehaving, but they're sick. So there's no need to punish the child. Give the kid Akamal and put the kid to bed. Yeah, I have one kid who's really a very, very good child and every now and then acts like a complete animal. And when that child acts like a complete animal, I take the kid in for a strep test. And 90% of the time, that's what it is. So if the kid is sick, there's no need to punish the kid. Just take care of him. Yeah, The reason he's misbehaving is because he doesn't feel well. And punishing him is not going to make him behave better when he feels better. He was behaving fine before he felt sick. Yeah? It's not going to make him behave better when he feels sick either. He just He's misbehaving because he feels. When I'm sick, I also am not a nice person to be with. Yeah? So that's the nature of his, his matzap. If he's sick, forget it, just take care of him. If a child is overtired, this, this is 99% of misbehavior that we see today. When a child is overtired, don't punish. Rather, put in the bed. <laughs> Now, I recognize you don't need a PhD to figure this out, but for some reason, what we do is, when the kids get overtired, that's when we start swinging. Yeah? And that's exactly the wrong time. Because the reason he's doing this is not because he's missing a value or because he hasn't internalized some behavior. It's because he's totally out of control. What are you like when you're tired? I can speak for myself. Watch out. Yeah? So therefore, if a kid is overtired, put them to bed. Sick, don't punish. Overtired, don't, don't punish. Another one. Hungry. Yeah? If a child is hungry, feed them. Yeah? I, I can't tell you how many cases I've had of parents coming to me telling me that their kids are absolute animals when they come home from school. And I've recommended, right, why don't you have a snack waiting for them when they come home? And the parents give the kid a snack, and then he's suddenly he's a, he's a charming doll. Now, I've had parents object before well, he should be a charming doll even when he's hungry. So I say, you're right, but let me ask you are you a charming doll even when you're hungry? I agree that this is what we should be like, but this is a tremendous darga. Yeah? uli. If the kid learns Mr. Shine for the next 25 or 30 years, then he'll be a charming doll when he's hungry. Yeah? But in the meantime, at 7 or 10 or 12, he's hungry. Give him food, then you'll have a charming doll again. Yeah? So when there is something physically wrong, there is no need for punishment. Just take care of whatever the physical need is and then move on. Okay. That's when we don't punish. Okay, now. The next question I always get is. Okay, he's not sick, he's not tired, he's not hungry. Now can I smack him? (laughs) Right? Okay, so... One of the gedolim once said to me that the reason why parents are so interested in hitting their kids is because hitting their kids gives them a sense of control. Because if you have the ability to hit the child, then you still have control. And it's very frightening for parents, and especially for teachers, to feel that they might be losing control of these demons who live in the house with them. Yes? So... If we can just admit that that's why we're so interested in that topic, then we can approach what I'm about to say a little bit more calmly. I'm going to recommend a five-step program for applying punishment in the planting, building prayer in the Kindle of the Soul system. Yeah? And the five steps are as follows. You walk in and the kids are misbehaving. Yeah? Uh, Shmulek is bopping his sister over the head with a baseball bat. Yeah? So, what do you do? Step number one. Think for. Slug up. No, no, that wasn't the answer. Right? Step number one. <laughs> Ask yourself what value or perspective is missing here? Take a good look at what's going on. Think quickly. What is the value perspective that's missing? Is it possible that Shmuelik does not value having a sister, for instance? Is that possibly what's going on here? Yeah? Right. We're getting to there. We're getting there. Right. This has to happen quick. You walk into the room, you see Shmuelik is bopping his sister over the head. Look at what's going on for a minute. Part of the problem that happens often with parents is they hear screaming, they walk into the room completely blind to what's going on in there, and they just grab both kids and punish them. I'm making a, a radical recommendation. Before you do anything, look and see what's happening. Yeah? By the way, this is important for another reason as well. And this is, a, this is an important point for the ladies. I apologize for doing this tangentially, but there's just so much to say. Uh, my children go for swimming lessons. My boys and my girls. The boys have boy lifeguards and the girls have girl lifeguards my wife takes the kids to the swimming sessions and she sits and watches the whole lesson as it takes place. So she noticed something fascinating. There's a period at the end of each lesson when there's free play. And she noticed that um, the boys engage in a type of roughhousing in their free play which makes my my wife very nervous. But the lifeguard says nothing. And then there'll be a slight elevation in the pace of the roughhousing and suddenly the lifeguard says, hey, cut it out! And my wife, for weeks, was thinking, what did he see? It was bad before. Like, why, you know, my high, that suddenly <laughs> he jumps up and says, that, you know, cut it out. And, of course, with the girls, the slightest bit of roughhousing, the girl lifeguards are on top of it right away. So what's going on? The answer is, boys know boys, and girls know girls. And... It is totally normal for boys to be rolling on the floor like little bears. Yeah, that's what boys do. Yeah, and unless you're a boy, you don't know what's normal there. Yeah, right. With girls, that that if if they're rolling on the ground, screaming and pinching each other, that's a sign that something's going wrong. Yeah, yeah. So it's important. This is dafka, very, very important for for men to know that when girls. Reach a certain threshold in the rough housing, it's much more serious than when the boys reach that threshold. And it's important for moms to know that when boys are doing that kind of rough housing, right, sometimes the mom can just relax and let it go because all that screaming is fine. Yeah? Right? Even a little blood is not necessarily dangerous. Yes? Right? It depends. You know, the boys are boys. So I'm not recommending that you allow hefcaris with boys. I'm also not recommending that you stop girls with the slightest bit of roughness. But we have to recognize that there are different standards here. Yeah. So, number one, walk in and take a look. What value is missing? Shmuelik doesn't value his sister, make a note of that. Item number two, what behavior is missing? You see what I'm doing? I'm going through the planting building business here. What behavior is missing? What behavioral brick needs to be inserted? Yes? Is it possible that when Sarla steals Shmuelik's toy, we want Shmuelik to come to Ema and tell her, Sarla just took my toy, instead of hanging her off the third floor balcony? Right? Look, what, is the, what exactly is the behavior that we want to insert at this point? Yeah? That's the second thing that you think about. You, now you're moving towards the children. Yeah? Number three, stop the misbehavior. Okay? Now I'll deal with how to perform number three in a moment. Number four, the misbehavior's over now. You stopped it. The next thing you do is, you think, when can I sit down with my spouse to discuss this amazing phenomenon that I witnessed today? I noticed today that my kid is missing seeds. There are certain values and perspectives that aren't there. And I noticed that my kid is missing bricks. And I think I was even able to identify what bricks are missing and what bricks I should insert. Right? When can I sit with my spouse and make a plan? And then what you do is you call a staff meeting. Right? You and the executive director of the, of the gone get together. I'm talking about you and your wife. Yeah. You get together in, the, in your staff meeting, and you plan how are we going to plant and build and pray this problem out of existence. So you say, okay, look, at planting. We've got to get Shmuelik to like his baby sister a little bit more. So how will we do that? Well, you know, tomorrow uh, I'm going to go for a walk with him. I was supposed to walk him to the dentist. On the way there, when I'm walking to the dentist with him, so I'll talk to him about all how I love my sisters and I have these great memories of her, and even though she was sometimes not nice to me, but I'm so glad I had a good relationship with her because now we're close. I'll start planning. And your wife says, yeah, you know what? I'm going to see him when he comes home tomorrow afternoon. I'm going to start telling him stories about how I loved my brothers and we spent time together. You know, so it was, we were sometimes rough with each other, but I regret that. I wish I hadn't done that now. And you know what? I'm going to mention to the Rebbe or the Mora that we had this problem. Could she drop in class a few times the importance of treating your brothers and sisters properly? Right? Right? And right? You know, he's going to visit his, his grandmother next week and I'm going to mention to her to say something else. And what you do is you plant from multiple media. You have it coming in from all sides. The kid has no idea there's a conspiracy going on. Yeah? And right, you, from all sides, suddenly he has these messages coming in of how wonderful it has to have a sister. Yeah? And you plant consistently until you see the problem ameliorated. Now, it might take planting a slow. So you might, it might take a month or two or five before you see the problem go away. Meanwhile, for a month or two or five, you're on a campaign to plant how wonderful wonderful it is to have sisters. How do you build? When the child is relaxed and happy and is not going to feel guilty or accused, you say, by the way, you know, I was thinking, sometimes sisters aren't nice to their brothers. And so Shumulaka, you know, I wanted to mention to you, like, if you ever have a problem with Sarala, you can come to me right away. I'll take care of it. You don't worry about a thing. Just come to me right away. Yeah? Right? And you repeat that over and over and over again, putting that brick in place time after time after time. And your wife does it as well. And between the two of you, you build that brick into place. Okay. Now, that gets us up to five. And then in number five, you actually execute this plan that you made. right? Always check in with each other once every you know, few days to see how the plan is going. Good. I'm sorry, I'm moving quick. Let's go back to number three now. How do you stop the misbehavior? So, there are in Tkinla's soul, five levels of punishment. The goal is to use the least harsh punishment possible to accomplish stopping the misbehavior. The reason for that is it's a concept which one of our Gdolim explained to me, it's a constant concept which translates in English as the punishment threshold. And it works like this. If you have a one and a half year old who misbehaves and you you walk up to that one-and-a-half-year-old and you say, and you give them a stern look, that one-and-a-half-year-old will burst into tears. You just look at them like, like that, they'll burst into tears. Okay. Now, what happens, that one-and-a-half-year-old later on then runs into the street. So you know you have to do something more serious than the stern look because they ran into the street. So you walk up to them, when they ran the street, you walk up to them, and uh, you take their hand, you give a punch. Yeah? Okay, now, the moment that you gave that potch, stern looks just lost 50% of their effectiveness. Because the kid is now basically numb to a stern look because when his parents are angry, they express it with potch. A stern look is something to yawn through. Yeah? And the more that I potch the child, the more the stern looks lose their power. Now, of course, after a while, the potch will lose its effectiveness because the the child becomes uh, used to the potch. The power of, of harsh punishment is the shock value. But after you potch the kid 30 times, it's not shocking anymore. It's like, oh, I got punished again, I got potched, right? Then, if the kid does something really serious, and you want to stop them. In order to get the same effect, what you've got to do is you've got to give them a good beating on the behind. Yeah? That'll last for a while. Okay, after a while, that won't work anymore either. Now, what ends up happening is the punishment threshold becomes more and more and more and more elevated. And unfortunately, as the punishment threshold is being elevated, you're also heading towards. Uh, puberty. And you try giving a potch to a 15 year old. Yeah? My 15 year old is two inches taller than me. Yeah? And he can bench press 70 pounds more than me. Now, who am I going to potch there? So, as I'm headed towards right the time when the ch- child is most going to need my guidance, the, the punishment, that the only thing I can ever depend on for punishment is becoming more and more useless. Besides the fact that and one of our God mentions this to me as well, often when we hit children, they don't appreciate it. Uh, in the old days, it wasn't that way. In the old days, my grandmother, a 94-year-old woman told me that she was poched when she was 94, and she said, I so loved my mother for her because I really deserved it. Yeah, She was t- potched, this is 90 years ago, she was four years old when she got poched. And she remembers, 90 years later, getting potched and thinking, I really deserve that. I'm so glad my mother cared enough to potch me. Yeah? Okay. That's not what kids are like today. Yeah? Most kids, right? If your kid is like that, beat him up. Yeah? Yeah? But on the chance that you might be dealing with a kid who doesn't like to get potched, so if you potch them, there's always a chance that you're going to lose the relationship with them. Why is that scary? Because at 13, 14, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, a hormone bomb goes off inside the child. I remember when this bomb went off inside of my body. It's important to remember back to those days. I remember one day my parents were sane, nice, good people. Should I look this? They were sane, nice, good people. My sisters were nice people. My teachers were nice people. And then I remember, bless you, right? I got pimples and the next day everyone went crazy. My parents were crazy. My friends were crazy. My teachers were crazy. They all went crazy, yeah? So... At that point when the child thinks you're nuts, and, and, and that is the state of a teenager, teenagers think that you're crazy. That's when you most need a relationship with them, you most want them to then come and talk to you about what's going on in their lives. And that, right, is the time well when if I've been hitting them and they don't feel safe with me, they're gonna walk away. Yeah, that's when they become independent. That's when you have these parents who say, you know, my kid doesn't talk to me anymore. My, you know, he comes home, doesn't? He goes, and puts on the, the headphones, reads a book, doesn't want to have anything to do with me. He's out late at night, doesn't. And there's no relationship going on. Why is that? Because when I had an opportunity to make the bond, I was harsh, and he learned I'm not safe. By the way, I'll just, I'll just use a metaphor, which I think is accurate, although it makes people very upset. But I'm using a metaphor to help us understand how our children feel when we hit them. Imagine the following uh, a, a young lady she 's twenty two years old she been going out she' looking for a while she finally finds the man of her dreams and um, and she gets married Shana Rishona they sit and learn yeah, and it 's so nice. He comes home at night he learns in 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 the living room at night and she sits and she reads a book it's just a it's an, an, an idyllic existence one night they're having dinner together before. They break to learn in the living room. And she says to her husband, You know, I really, I, I should lose some weight. So the husband says, Nah, I love you the way you are. You don't have to lose any weight. You're beautiful to me. She says, No, no, I really should lose No, 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 no. The husband says, You're fine. You're fine. I really, I love you the way you are. She says, No, please help me. I really do want to lose some weight. The husband says, Okay, fine. If you want to lose weight, I'll support you. Fine. They do the dishes together. Shana. Shana. They walk, they walk, uh, they walk in the living room. He sits down with the stender. He starts learning Gamara. She sits down with the safer. She's sitting and, and reading. There's a knock at the door. She goes, she doesn't want her husband to bother. She goes over, she answers the door. It's the neighbor. There's a lot of nice young neighbors living in the building, right? It's the neighbor. She came up. She comes up with a whole tray of chocolate chip cookies. We love you guys so much, we brought you chocolate chip cookies. So what, she's going to say no to the neighbor? It's not nice. She takes the chocolate chip cookie. She goes in the kitchen. She puts them down, right? She's sitting at the kitchen table. The chocolate chip cookies are cooling there and she's reading her book. And, 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 and the flavor of the chocolate chip cookies is wafting towards her nose, yes? And the chocolate chip cookies are calling to her, eat me, yes, Right. And she, she figures, like, how many calories are there in one cookie anyway? 60 calories. I mean, big deal, you know. So she reaches over and take a chocolate chip cookie, and out of no place, smack, she looks up, and her husband just hit her. She says, what did you just do? He says, well, you know, I love you, and, I, and you asked me to support you, and you know, it hurt me more than it hurt you, and I, but I really just wanted you to help have, you know, help with your diet, so that's why I hit you. Okay, now, here you are dealing with an adult who made a request please help me. And it's perfectly capable of being damachaf schus and understands that her husband is only trying to create a negative association with the eating of the chocolate chip cookies, which would then give her more strength in the future. And You can come up with all the justifications in the world that you want. It is clear to you that their relationship will never be the same ever again. She will never fully trust that man. No matter what happens in the future, she will never fully trust him again because he hit her. But here you are dealing with an adult that being damachaf a uh, 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 2, 10-year-old is not going to have the ability that this 22-year-old lady has to justify her husband's behavior. And she knows, she's red-skinner, and she knows about Pavlov and negative association. Her husband is really correct. Says, we'll create a negative association. It's a really intelligent thing to do. And yet, it's over. Their relationship has changed. There's a, a trust that's gone. Okay. That is what happens with our children as well. And of course, the more that he hits her, the less trust there will be. And it's never too late to do tshuva. So it's, it's possible to back off of these sorts of harsh punishments if we want to. Now, what sorts of punishments can we use yeah, that are not harsh that will do the job? So again, let's redefine punishment. Punishment is how to stop the misbehavior. It's not chinuch. Chinuch is later on when you plant and you build and you pray. Given that's the case, so what sorts of punishments can you use when children are misbehaving? So a great way to stop the misbehavior is distraction. Right, uh, change the game, put on some music, go in there juggling eggs, do a handstand. Those are serious punishments. You're saying, well, that's not a punishment. That's not going to teach them anything. Well, of course not. Punishment is not for chinuch. Chinuch is, Achnas is l'amot ba. That has nothing to do with smacking your kids. That's also not chinuch. Yeah? I, 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 I can't believe the following case is actually true, but And I didn't meet the parents, but someone reported the following to me. The children were misbehaving at the Shabbos table. And the father, as a physician, said, uh, you know, he said to his wife, sweetie, should we do it now? And the woman said, uh, no, no, they'll settle down. And Shabbos meal was on, their kids are getting more rambunctious. right? This reports me by a guest who was sitting at the table. And, uh, And the father says, I really think we should do it now. And the mother says, okay, I guess we should do it. And the phys- this father is a physician, goes into the kitchen, and he comes back with a little bottle, and he pours out a teaspoon, and gives each child a teaspoon, and a minute and a half later, every kid is asleep on the ground. Yeah? Okay, now. <laughs> the father would say, hey, what a great mechanic I am! Look at that, bedtime went so well! But it's obvious to you that there was no chinoch here. Yeah? It's no chinuch. Right? So, so too, when, when we come in harsh, that's not chinuch. It may stop the behavior, misbehavior. This stops the misbehavior. This is a great punishment. Yeah, drug your kids. It's a great punishment. Or beat them. That's also. F- but why do that when you could do something which is going to be less damaging to the relationship? Like go in juggling eggs. Change the music. Put the kid in the bath. Change the game. Bring out some new toys. Do something which stops the misbehavior. I, you weren't mechanech. Well, it wasn't a chinuch moment. Chinuch is when you plant and build and pray. You're beginning to see how the whole framework works. What happens if distraction doesn't work? By the way, be mediac in the words. If distraction didn't work, that means you already tried number one. Only then do you proceed to something more harsh, which is number two. Number two on the list. A stern look. We are so dependent on harsh punishments that we don't experiment enough with distraction. I mean, so with theatrics. You can do a lot with theatrics. I used to poch. Before I became aware of this whole system. And when I, when I stopped watching, I asked the guddle here in your now that I'm doing planting and building a prayer, what do I, how, like, how do I get my kids to, 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 when they were misbehaving, how do I get them to stop? So this guddle said to me, on Friday night, they misbehave on Friday night, give them a little bit less kiddish wine. I looked at him like, are you crazy? If I give my kids a little bit less kiddish wine, they'll throw it at me. <laughs> you know, like, you know, he said, you know, give them a stern look. If I give them a stern look, they look at me and they go, Eah! you know, they don't care. So, so I, what are you talking about? So what, He explained to me, I have to let the punishment threshold drop back down again. For nine months, there was half Hefkeris in my house. Nine months while I was letting the punishment <laughs> threshold drop because I was a potcher, right? And I stopped potching, what happened? But eventually I got down to the point, and that's the way it is in my house now. If one of my kids misbehaves and I look at my kids like, like that, they'll cry. That look will do it. They will cry. If, if I would say to one of my kids, they'll stop. That's very harsh in my house. Yeah, Because they know, when I want the behavior normally to stop, I go and I change the game, and I, so I distract it or something like this. I'll come in, I'll tickle them, I'll do something. If I get in there, I'm already giving them rebuke with a face. That's serious. What happens if distraction didn't work and rebuke with the face didn't work? Okay, now we're talking about really harsh. I have to let them have it now. I've got to blast them. Because like I, I tried the easy stuff and it didn't work. Notice though, be McDyke. I tried distraction and I tried a harsh look. And that didn't work. Now I'm up to number three. Number three is I give a calm instruction. David, put down the bottle before it breaks. Okay now that's much more serious than just the facial expression where I didn't say anything yet. Here, I felt the need to open my mouth. If a child hasn't had his punishment threshold artificially raised, artificially elevated, or if you'll just let the the levels come back down again, that is harsh. David put down the bottle. Now, you might have to repeat yourself in different tones of voice using different language. Not to nag. God forbid. We never nag. If you nag, you'll make, make your child mommy deaf or daddy deaf. Yeah? Rather, you say it in different ways because sometimes the kid is so wrapped up in what he's doing, he possibly doesn't hear you. Yeah? I've seen cases before where the parents are disciplining their kid and the kid is not listening and then the parent just loses it and goes over and smacks the kid. The kid's like, what did you just hit me for? Because the child was so wrapped up in what they were doing, they just didn't hear up until then. So try different tones of voice, different language, right, until they hear what you're saying. Okay, this is already very, very, very serious. Okay. What happens if this doesn't work? If this doesn't work and nothing else I did up until now worked as well. Okay, now this, things are pretty out of hand in my house at this point. If none of these things worked, this kid is really acting bad and they deserve to be nailed at this point. Yeah? So what do we do? Then we say the when-then statement. Yes? When you get in your pajamas, then I'll read you the story. Okay, now don't use if-then. Because if-then creates an opportunity that you are trying to eliminate that they're not going to get in their pajamas at all. Yeah? You use when then. And you say, you know, like, you know, bedtime is, I'm using bedtime because that's a classic example of when kids misbehave, right? Bedtime is, at, you know, lights out in in eight and a half minutes. So if you want me to read to you from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, yeah, you you better get in those pajamas quick. When you're in your pajamas, I'll read. Until then, I'm not reading. Yeah? By the way, you can only do this if you read your kids' Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when they go to sleep. Right? If you don't do that, so then you have nothing to hold over their head. Yeah? Etc. Okay. You're starting to get the hang of it. When then, that's very, very, very serious. Okay, now. That's not, you can't use that as an impediment I'm speed up nothing to do with punishment. Just... Oh, no, that's no, true. No, it's true. You, you know, it's, when the kids are not mischaping, you can also use that. In Echinami. In Echinami. Okay. But there, the reason that's so much more serious than everything up until then is at this point, I'm already bringing in external consequences. Yeah? Okay, now. There is a last punishment which is one of the most serious that within the planting and building system you can you can use. I recommend it be used rarely because it's very serious and if used too often it can do a lot of damage. And that is, I'm sorry, I'm going over a little bit tonight because this last session I just want to squeeze in as much as possible. If anyone has to leave, I'm moichel. I don't mind if anyone gets up and, and goes. <coughs> that is uh, time out. Now time out Talmudic timeout is not like the timeout of the psychologists. The timeout of the psychologists is that you take this miserable miscreant and you ban him from your your presence so that you don't have to look at his face because he's disgusting. Yes? Okay. That is not Talmudic timeout. Talmudic timeout is room for the child to emotionally restart. So, in Talmudic timeout, what you do is you say to the child, you know, you're not playing nicely with the other kids. Go... You know, to the room or the corner or the balcony or whatever, and cool out. And when you can come back and play without hitting your sister, come back. Okay. Now, note, we did not attach a time. We didn't say come back in five minutes or ten minutes. And the reason there's two there's two reasons here. One is the child might not need ten minutes in the corner. So, like, why have him punished in the corner for seven extra minutes when he can cool out in three? And he might need 15 minutes in the corner, and so then why bring him back in 10 and have him cause problems again? That's reason number one, is how do you know how much time it's going to take for him to cool out? Really, you don't know. Reason number two is, if you teach your children to go into Talmudic timeout, you teach them to go into a a quiet place until they are emotionally calm, you start imparting to them a skill. This is real chinuch. You are imparting to them a skill that they're going to need for the rest of their lives, which is when you start getting all emotionally worked up, you take yourself out of the situation, and you go cool out someplace. Yeah, instead of reacting. Right? That is a skill. That's real chinuch. because this is something, this is an umnish you want your child to be able to do forever. And you can create in the child an emotional awareness, that the child knows when he's upset and when he's calming down. So therefore, we send our kids out, right? Go, calm down. When you're ready to come back, and then give it a concrete criterion. When you're ready to play without hitting, when you're ready to eat without throwing food, when you're ready to, whatever it is, then you come back into the room again. If the child brings himself back to early and misbehaves again, then he can go back out to time out again. Okay, now, it's fully appropriate for you to visit a child in time out in order to communicate to them that you didn't ban them from your presence because you don't like them. Yeah, so you can visit them and say, how are you doing? Everything's okay, fine, when you're ready, come on out. And again, not angry. There's no reason for you to show them the cost is a good thing. That's not good chinuch. So, you go in the corner and you talk to them while they're, in, while they're sitting there in timeout. You can go in and, and visit with them. Right. Timeout is heavy duty. If you use timeout too often, then you'll end up making a kid feel that he's not loved. Yeah? But it is a very harsh punishment that if the previous four things didn't work, you can always go ahead and, and, and go for that. By the way, if, if you're going through all five of these every night, you better ask maybe my kid is overtired in which case you shouldn't be using any of them. Yeah? Words, these punishments, you don't hit them very often. They shouldn't be coming up every single day. If they're coming up every single day, there's some external cause that you should be dealing with instead. Okay, no, wait a uh, Let me just zip through to the end and then I'll take questions. Tantrums. Tantrums are the one exception to everything that we've said. And I mentioned this before. We never, ever, ever give into tantrums. There is no exception. We don't give into tantrums with teenagers. We don't give into tantrums with, with, with you know. 9, 10, 11 year olds, we don't get in tantrums with, with two year olds. Yeah? If you give them to a tantrum once, you buy yourself 30 more tantrums. Because the kid will just think, I've got to just scream longer, right? And then I'll eventually get what I want. Now, there's all sorts of extortion. With, with teenagers, they do the exact same thing, right? If you don't X, then I'm going to Y. So you say to them, that's a tantrum. And since you were a little one, we never gave you tantrums and we're not going to start now. Yeah, and does and if you want to come and talk to me like a mensch, I'll talk to you. But I'm not going to discuss anything under fire, so to speak. Yeah, that's not how we negotiate. So when the child is done throwing a tantrum, then you're right there and you represent yourself and you're ready to talk. But in t- until the child stops throwing a tantrum, there is no contact, nothing. I do not deal with something in the middle of a tantrum, right? And and just total cut off while they're in the middle of a tantrum is the best. They throw a tantrum, walk out of the room. That's the best thing to do. Just walk out of the room. Don't have anything to do with them while they're in the middle of a tantrum. I, your guests will think you're a terrible parent because your kid is sitting there screaming you're doing nothing. Okay, let them think that. The reality is we don't give it to tantrums. When I see parents doing that, I'm so impressed. Invite me to your house, I'll be impressed. Okay. <laughs> Last thing on the list, hitting and yelling. Does it work? And in situations which are considered nefesh, I don't have time tonight to go through it. All the data shows the more that parents hit and yell, and I'm including yelling and harsh punishment here, or saying words that are intended to cause the child pain. You're ugly. You're stupid. I don't like being with you. I hate you. All those sorts of language. Yeah. Whenever you hit or use that kind of language, all it does is it makes the kid worse behaved. And we can figure this out from the planting-building paradigm. But in, if you need the data, all the data is in the Kindle of Soul. And it's consistent across the board. The more the parents spank, the worse the kids are behaved. Yeah, The more the parents yell, the worse the kids act. It doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is it snaps the conduit, which allows the seeds and the bricks to pass. Finally, what about in situations of bikoach nefesh? The case I always get is, okay, generally you shouldn't yell or hit, but if your kid runs in the street, you have to teach them a lesson so that you can save their life. This is bikoach nefesh mamish. So you grab your kid out of the street, and then you beat the living daylights out of them so they'll remember for the rest of your life, don't ever do that. Okay. Let's take that example. Just a little bit of data. The, the center of the bell curve of the kids who get run over by cars are four-year-olds. The reason is because four year, before four years old, generally kids are afraid of the street. So they tend not to run the street. And after four years old, they're tall enough so cars can see them. The kids who are mamas just do-race, like you know, the, the car just goes right over them and kills them, God forbid. Those are usually four years old. Now... If my four-year-old runs in the street and I hit the kid, the kid, if it's a good beating, the kid will learn instantaneously. Don't ever run into the street in front of Abba. That's what I learned as a kid. I, there were certain things which I would never do in front of my parents because I knew I would get in trouble. But if my parents aren't there, why not? And one last thing you have to know The vast majority, over 70% of the four-year-olds who get run over by cars, their parents are not present at the time. So if you're going to save your kid's life by hitting him when he runs in the street, you did nothing. Because he's going to run in the street when you're not there, and that's when they get run in the street and God forbid. So you've done absolutely nothing to protect the child. So what do you do if you want to save the child's life? He has to be afraid of the street, not of Abba. So how do you make the kid afraid of the street? That's a different skill. That's not... It's not going to help to beat the kid to make him afraid of the street. That only makes him afraid of Abba, How do you make him afraid of the street? So, girl gave me great advice. He told me to buy a book called Elchanan Boreach Lakfish. It's, it's, it was written by a lady who lives in a remote and she has a whole set of, I don't know, of 20 or 30 books, all which teach beautiful lessons. Now, I shouldn't say all, most of which teach beautiful lessons. I haven't read all of them, but they, the, what I've read looks good to me. And... Um, and, and in this book, you have this picture of this little, I think it was, her name was Sarla. I forget the written, if I get the names wrong, forgive me. But it's like Sarla, and she's playing. Sarla is like 12, and she's playing with her little brother, El Khanan, who's four. And they go to their mo- mother, and they say, Can we go down the street? And they go, The, the mother says, I don't know. El Khanan always runs into the street. When he goes down, and Sarah says, I promise I'll watch him. And El Khanan says, I promise I won't run into the street. They go downstairs. They're playing ball. The ball starts to roll into the street. You flip the page. And the ball is bouncing into the street, and you see El turning towards the ball. You flip the page. There's a car that comes screaming around the corner at high speed. You flip the page. El Hanan is starting to walk out in the street after the ball. You flip the page. The car is heading straight up the street with the ball right in front of it. You don't see El he's small. You flip the page, right? El Hanan is leaning over the ball. He's down branding over the ball, and the car is 10 feet from him, going what looks like 60 miles an hour. You flip the page, the car is about to slam right into Elchanan, and Sarla is standing on the street, and she's like, ah, crying. You flip the page, and Sarla lunges for Elchanan, pushes him out of the way, and the car slams into Sarla and knocks her on the ground. You flip the page, Elchanan is standing on the street, and the paramedics are all over Sarla. You flip the page and the ambulance is pulling away with Elchanan left alone on the street crying. You flip the page, Sarla's laying in a hospital bed and Ohanan's standing next to her and Sarla's stroking his head and she's saying, Elchanan, don't worry, it's only bruises. I'll be out in a few days. You flip the page and Elchanan and Sarla are walking out of the hospital together holding hands and Elchanan says, I promise Sarla I'll never run the street again. I've read this book to every single one of my five children. They are traumatized. <laughs> they will not go near a street for the first three weeks after you read them this book. Like, they won't even go near the sidewalk, yeah? Okay. Now, it's strong medicine, and, and it, this could give a kid nightmares. But you are going to hit the kid. That's also strong medicine, and that breaks the relationship between you and the child. This book does not break the relationship between me and my child. In fact, when I'm reading the book to my children, first of all, when I take out the book, my older ones say, no! <laughs> but the younger ones who don't know, they say, I was gonna read me a story, so I sit down on the couch and I flip in the pages, and my kids are like, you know, like listening like this, and it gets to the point where we're going to see, the car is about to hit him, and my child's like, Abba, Abba, and I said, It's terrible. Let's see the next page, yeah. <laughs> yeah? Right? And the kid's like holding on to me and I'm holding him and comforting him, yeah. And he's drawing close to me the whole time. So I don't blow my relationship with him. You see the Hachma. And in the end, my kid's afraid of the street. He's not afraid of me. Yeah? So, in the cases where you're going to quote unquote, I've got to hit my kid in this case, if you use your your seichel, you'll realize there's always a better way. There's always a way that you can deal with the kid where you're not going to risk losing the relationship with the child. And the child will learn a much better lesson than he would have learned if you beat him. Okay, so I'm sorry, I went way over tonight. I kept you 15 minutes extra, but I just wanted to make sure we got through this. What I'll do is I'll, I'll take questions now, and just in case anyone has to leave, I just want to announce, next week... The, the ladies should come. Your wife should come. The, the, the ladies will sit down here in the shul because they haven't had a chance to come at all. The men would like to come, so they'll come and sit in the Ezra's Nashim. And I'm going to do one hour of Q&A. Do not send your wife without questions because I'm not going to give a schmooze. I'm just going to take questions. And in one hour, we'll try to wrap up all the loose ends that we left, which are not, you know, I, I don't know how we'll do that in an hour, but we'll, we'll try to wrap up as many as we can. Okay, questions, shoot. Right. Is there any sort of behavior that we want that we can accomplish through punishment? In other words, if you don't do X, such and such will happen, or the like. So, like this, as long as you're willing to be present whenever you want that behavior performed, then punishment will work. Um, there's a beautiful work by Rebriochim Lovav, it's about Noah and Avraham, where Rebriochim tries to explain the difference between Noah's and Avraham's. And the word he says is like this uh, Noah walked with Elohim. he walked with God, right Avraham walked in front of God, Rashi says, so what does that mean? Avraham had an internalized picture of what Hashem wanted the world to look like. He had values, perspectives, the tree was sprouting, and then what Avraham did was he pursued that vision trying to create a world that matched Hashem's picture of what the world should look like. Noach was a tzaddik, but he was, he was only a tzaddik. He wasn't a chossid. He was an instruction follower. Right? Hashem said to him, get in the ark. He said, yes, sir. Whatever Hashem told him to do, he did. But he only did what he was told to do. Okay. The way that Rabbi Rucham Lubavitz describes it there, Noachs are people who have an external locus of control. That is, that... Whenever something from the outside tells them what to do, they do it. Roshan writes in his Sefer, Zerubinyan, he writes there that uh, if we constantly force our will upon kids, and that's, we only force our will upon them, we only build, so to speak, we will get a robot. The kid will have no use, he'll have no internal drive, vision, he won't pursue <clears throat> making a better world or making a cleaner house, or, or, or doing the dishes. He'll do whatever he's told. Avraham's, they pursue. It's like this. Today, I'll just use a metaphor. Today in the world, there are two different kinds of states. There are states that are trying to create Noah's obedient citizens. Those places are called dictatorships. And there's states that are trying to create a good citizenry. The difference in the educational technique is that in the states where they're trying to create obedient citizens, they create that by using tremendous threat. If you, if, you, if you cross the government, you're dead. We'll cut off your arm. In those states, if the Americans come in and wipe out the leader, the whole country is more than happy to get rid of him and you know, go on with a new government because there was no loyalty to him. They hated him. Yeah. These are the, 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 the quote-unquote Noahs, Noahs. However, if you, if you use planting and building to actually create a different sort of, chi- of child, then even when you're not there, the child will behave appropriately. Which, so, so, that's Avram's, and that's what we're shooting for. So therefore, if you only want to get the child to behave that way when you're present, when the government is looking over the kid's head, punishment is a great way to do that. But if you want to get a child to accept this behavior and do it for the rest of his life, even when you're not there, you've got to plant, build, and pray. Notice, from the very beginning, we said, chinuch is planting, building, and praying. We never spoke about beating. That wasn't, that wasn't part of the plan. And the reason is, it's not chinuch. It's something else. Uh, punishment is for the purpose of stopping behaviors, and if you want to stop behavior, there's better ways than to hit a kid. Yeah. Also, um, for was something like this. I'm not sure if is the same thing, but is it okay for, for us to say to a child who has hit, we don't like to be with the child, we don't like to be with the person who is. good. This is very important. I'm glad you raised it because I didn't raise it. We believe in natural consequences. Now, that is as opposed to a punishment where it's obvious that your only intention is to hurt the child. So, if, for instance, let's say I say to a child, if you don't clean up your toys, I'm going to throw away the picture you made in Art Club today. So the kid is going to think, I'm an animal. Because, like, what does one thing have to do with the other? You're just trying to cause me pain. You're mean, yeah? And, and obviously, you're not chas alay, because you would, you would do that to me. Okay. However, if I say to the child, uh, be, yeah, because you're not playing nicely with the children, you have to go in the other room, the kid doesn't think I'm trying to cause him pain. He thinks, well, listen, I'm not behaving responsibly in this sphere, so I'm going to be taken out of that sphere. Or if the kid is taking his paints and painting on the wall, say if you're painting on the wall, I take your paints away. He doesn't think you're trying to cause him pain. He understands that you're doing this because he's not related to the paints appropriately. So, pu- quote unquote punishments that are perfectly natural consequences are terrific. The only kinds of punishments that get scary is if they're very harsh, or if there's absolutely no connection between the punishment and the and the crime. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I don't know. So go and sit with the child and time out. Sit with them and time out. Sit with them and time out. Go sit with them. If they're too immature to stay there, then stay with them and time out. Remember, the goal is not for you to get away from the child. It's to get the child away from the situation. So go sit with them and time out.